Thank you, Gary. You have a handout. Does everybody have a copy of the handout? You can see that in front of you. It didn't take long. Uh, No sooner had I put the copy of the handout into one person's hand, I I won't name him, uh, but the former principal said that um, (laughs) the session appeared not to begin with the Bible. And we are going to get, I need to warn you, into some fairly dense exegetical work in this session and the next one, but not for some time. Uh, So please don't think I've forgotten the Bible. Um, Part of what I want to do by the end of it is to attempt to bring together some of what we find in Genesis and in Hebrews uh, with some big apologetic questions and to think about what the Bible says to our culture given its difficulties. Um, And to do that, we are going to start, actually not with our own culture, uh, but we're going to start for some time in ancient Athens and in ancient Rome. So come to the year 458 BC, and in Athens there is a festival to Dionysius, and it is known as the Dionysia, the Great Dionysia. And part of this festival is a drama competition, and each contestant produces for this competition a trilogy of plays which are performed and judged. And one playwright is contributing a trilogy this year in 458, who is called Aeschylus, and the trilogy is known as the Oresteia. It's made up of three plays, Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides. There would have been hundreds such trilogies of plays written for this long-running competition in ancient Athens. This is the only trilogy which survives. It is, however, hard to imagine that anybody could have written a more stunning trilogy of plays, could have done better in ancient Athens. The story is a familiar story. It comes up in other ancient writers as well. There are other plays on different parts of the story, Sophocles, Euripides, and others wrote on it. It also has an extraordinary afterlife in the history of Western literature. Uh, There are numerous famous poets who have written poetic versions or poems about it, Um, Robert Browning, Robert Fagels, Ted Hughes, for example. Lots of modern playwrights have their stab at this Oresteia story or a bit of it. In 2015, you could have gone to two productions of the Oresteia on the London stage, one at the Globe and one at the Almeida. Only last week, a production of another version of it finished in Glasgow. There have been operas based on this story, most famously by Richard Strauss. There's even a spaghetti western based on this story, which I have not seen. A little passage of it is quoted at the beginning of Watership Down, and in the last book of Harry Potter, there is a long quotation from it as well. This is one of the great stories of Western literature. What is the story? Well, let me give you a brief summary. It's tied to the Trojan War. Paris, you may remember, stole Helen from Menelaus and took her back to Troy, and the Greeks mobilised their army and ships to go and recover her. But because of the anger of the goddess Artemis, the Greeks get stuck. There's no wind blowing. And they languish and they languish, and as armies do, the army got restive and trouble is coming. And Agamemnon, uh, the the, the commander of the army, the Greek king, is very worried about what's going to happen with this um, unsettled army. And so he turns to the gods for help and asks what he should do. And a message comes through the seer Calchas who tells him that the winds will only blow if he sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. 
Now you can imagine Agamemnon is plunged into turmoil. His brother Menelaus, whose who's wife they're trying to recover, um, exhorts him to do it. He's got to do it. And in the end, Agamemnon comes round. Different things happen in different versions of the story. But he tricks his wife Clytemnestra to bringing their daughter, uh, telling her that um, he's found her um, somebody to marry her, that she's going to marry Achilles. And so she brings her. And then Iphigenia is seized and sacrificed. And the winds blow. And off they sail to Troy. And they besiege Troy. Ten years it takes. And in the end, through the famous device of the Trojan horse, they win and they come home. Now, Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, whose daughter has been sacrificed, is waiting at home for her husband. And she's had ten years to think about what she's going to do when he comes back. And she has long plotted his death. Uh, She's got a lover by now, Aegisthus. She has other reasons to want to get rid of Agamemnon, therefore, apart from simply the fact that he killed their daughter. The chorus in the play warns of how blood that has fallen on the ground cannot be raised to life again as she plots. She welcomes her husband back and proclaims him a great hero and a conquering king. And he goes to do what he's been longing to do during his ten years away on the beach at Troy, to have a hot bath. And she murders him in the bath. And when she kills him, she exults before the elders of the city in the justice of what she has just done. Here's some of the language she uses. And if you listen carefully, it may give you a hint of where we're heading. I am jubilant. And were it seemly over a dead man to pour thank-offering for safe journey, surely justice here allows it, here demands it. So enriched a wine of wickedness this man stored in his house, and now returned, drains his own cursed cup to the last dregs. Clytemnestra is telling us that justice has finally been done against Agamemnon, and he has drunk the cup of his own wickedness. In the 2015 version of this play by Robert Icke that was performed um, in London, um, there's some extraordinary vivid language. And the scene where Clytemnestra drags Agamemnon's dead and still bleeding body out onto the stage and is drenched with blood herself runs like this. She stands there and she says, I open my mouth like a plant in the rain and in the red, and I feel so awake It's like liquid rightness pumping into my arteries. He's dead. I'm alive and I'm free. And from this point, from now on, this house is set in order once and for all. Did you hear that? Liquid rightness pumping in my veins and the house is now set in order. But of course, we know, and Aeschylus knew, that the house is now not at all set in order. Blood has been shed. More blood has been shed. A husband's blood has been shed. And therefore, more blood will have to be shed. As the chorus asks, what right can sanctify the ground where blood lies spilt? Where earth, man's patient nurse, has drunk and drunk again man's blood, and grieving sees the thick, unmelted stain which pleads for vengeance, 
There the restless curse waits, unforgetful for the guilty soul to teem with foul disease that nothing can make whole. Though all streams should yield their purity to swell one cleansing flood, their force must fail. Their power to purge be vain for hands that bear the stain of unrequited blood. Agamemnon and Clytemnestra have other children, and their son Orestes has been away, and now he returns. And he is commanded by the god Apollo, of course one of the features of these stories, isn't it, is how all the gods are doing different things with competing interests and getting people to do what they want them to do. Apollo commands him to avenge his father's death on Clytemnestra. He meets his surviving sister Electra, and he explains to her why he must kill their mother, Again, note the language. The word of Apollo is of great power and cannot fail. His voice, urgent, insistent, drives me to dare this peril. Chilling my heart's hot blood with recital of threatened terrors, if I should fail, to exact fit vengeance, like for like, from those who killed my father. This was the god's command. Shed blood for blood, your face set like flint. The price they owe, no wealth can pay. And so in response to Apollo's command, Orestes kills his mother and her lover. And so now what's happened? Well, of course, more blood has been shed and more blood must be shed. And so the Furies, who are the spirits of justice and vengeance, avenging hounds incensed by a mother's blood, as Aeschylus calls them, pursue Orestes all the way to Athens, And it's in Athens in the final play that things take an unexpected turn. Orestes appears before a jury who cannot decide whether he's guilty or innocent. It's a hung jury. And in that situation, the chair of the jury, Athene, has to decide. And the goddess clears Orestes and declares him innocent. And you may wonder, how can that be? Well, here's her reasoning. Male supremacy in all things. It is more serious to kill your husband, as Clytemnestra did, than to kill your mother, as Orestes did. And because Orestes was avenging the death of a man, it was okay for him to kill a woman, even his own mother. And so the Furies, these spirits who'd hounded him, are transformed into the Eumenides, the kindly ones, who now inhabit Athens. And the whole story is a sort of apology for the Athenian system of justice and trial by jury and how it all ends happily ever after. Now, let's be quite clear, it's in one sense a good ending. It's good to stop a cycle of bloodshed. But we are left wondering at the end of it how it's happened and what has happened for the need that runs all the way through the plays for justice to be done when blood has been shed. Because suddenly that seems to evaporate in a puff of sexist reasoning at the end of the play. The end of Robert Icke's modern version is very interesting because the same thing happens on the same grounds. Um, He's declared innocent because he only killed a woman who had killed a man. Um, And Orestes is left standing on the stage. But the play actually finishes with Orestes standing there. He asks, all bewildered, what happened? And Calchas the prophet tells him, they find you innocent. But you already knew that, you're free. And Orestes says this, but I still killed her. Where does it end? Perhaps I always feel 
guilty. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And the play ends. And there the question is left unanswered. The Eskelon answer to the cry of blood, happy though it is in one sense, is no solution at all. It is the right conclusion that a spiral of violence should end, but it is reached on no adequate grounds. Now we'll briefly come to Rome, and we're in the first century BC, the time of the poet Virgil. Virgil's Aeneid tells a story from the other side of the Trojan War. Aeneas is the hero of Troy who flees with his father, his son, and carrying his household gods to find a new Troy, which in due course will become Rome. This is a a story of origins for the Roman Empire. Uh, That will happen, you'll recall, when Romulus kills Remus and a city is founded. Ah, One brother kills another brother and then founds a city. Ring any bells? Um, But the Aeneid describes along the way many fights and battles. It speaks of how the ground was running with rivers of newly shed blood. And at the end of the book, Turnus, who's one of Aeneas's enemies, who's, who's lost a potential wife to Aeneas and is enraged and has killed many in battle, including Pallas, a close ally of Aeneas, Turnus ends up uh, in hand-to-hand combat with Aeneas. Turnus is wearing the sword belt, the baldric, of Pallas, Aeneas' friend who he kills earlier in the story. But Turnus has now been abandoned by the gods, having been this extraordinary fighter. The gods have left him, um, and Aeneas finally overcomes him. And he is kneeling before Aeneas now, pleading for mercy from Aeneas. Virgil writes this, There stood Aeneas, deadly in his armour, rolling his eyes, but he checked his hand, hesitating more and more as the words of Turnus began to move him. So you see, Turnus is kneeling there, Aeneas is poised over him with his sword, Turnus is pleading, and Aeneas is changing his mind and is coming round as he hears him pleading. He's about to have mercy on him. But then he sees the sword belt of Pallas that Turnus is wearing. And these are the closing words of Virgil's Aeneid. Aeneas feasted his eyes on the sight of this spoil, this reminder of his own wild grief. Then, burning with mad passion and terrible in his wrath, he cried, Are you to escape me now, wearing the spoils stripped from the body of those I loved? By this wound which I now give, it is Pallas who makes sacrifice of you. It is Pallas who exacts the penalty in your guilty blood. Blazing with rage, he plunged the steel full into his enemy's breast. The limbs of Turnus were dissolved in cold, and his life left him with a groan, fleeing in anger down to the shades. Cut. What are we to make of this? And what does Virgil make of it? The moral quality of this ending of the story is much debated. One ancient commentator, Servius, said it would have been pious to have mercy or pious to kill him. Either way's okay. Vengeance, we know, was celebrated by the Romans. Um, When Augustus avenged his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, he built a temple to Mars Altor, Mars the Avenger. But while Virgil does seem to evoke some sympathy for Turnus, he does use um, in his vocabulary a very, very negative word to describe 
Aeneas's state of mind. So it seems that the problem is not so much sympathy for Turner, says what's driving Aeneas? He's burning with mad passion. And this little group of words, the burning words in Virgil are bad things. When you burn, you're not using your reason. You've lost control. And in particular, the burning vocabulary is the opposite of the piety vocabulary for Virgil. So it does seem that we're to think that this is a bad thing that happens at the end here, and he should have had mercy. And earlier in the story, Aeneas has been told by his father that the Roman thing to do, one of the virtues of the Roman, is that when he conquers his enemy, he has mercy on him. Your task, Roman, and do not forget it, will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. These will be your arts, and to impose a settled pattern upon peace, to pardon the defeated and war down the proud. Well, here is Turnus kneeling before him, defeated. What should Aeneas therefore do according to that description of Roman virtue? He ought to pardon him, but he doesn't. He kills him, burning with wrath. So the Aeneid ends really in ambiguity, asking a question, is this justice or is it vengeance? If it has a clear message, it is probably that, regretfully, this kind of rage is necessary to the founding of the great Roman Empire that has brought peace to the world in Augustus's day. It's a tragic necessity. Now, why this long detour to Greece and Rome? Well, hopefully to show you that both ancient Greek and ancient Roman culture were asking very, very similar questions about the nature of justice. What is justice? How is justice different from vengeance? And how can justice be achieved without perpetuating a spiral of violence through the centuries and through families? And I think we could come to our own culture and demonstrate quite easily, which don't worry, I'm not going to do. We're going to get to the Bible now. But we could demonstrate quite easily from our own culture how it is still perplexed by questions of justice and indeed questions of vengeance. Aeschylus answers inadequately with his appeal to the superiority and greater importance of a male life. Virgil leaves us wondering what he really thinks or may be resigned to the spiral of vengeance. No human answer has sufficed or will suffice to these questions. That's why people still write versions of these plays and these epics and still perform them, because these are still the great questions that remain unanswered in human culture. No human answer will suffice, and no human solution can establish justice, let alone find a way for righteousness and peace, for tzedek and shalom, for dikaiosune and uh, erene, for justitia and pax, to live together, to kiss, in the way that they do in the Bible. So what does the Bible say the answer is? Let's come to another place where we find Hebrew, Greek and Latin used together via Genesis 4. So Genesis 4. I want to look closely at these kinds of questions in the story of Cain and Abel. And I'm going to begin by touching on a theme um, which I spoke about at the Banner Conference. So if this whets your appetite, those talks are online. And one of them is about the importance of the details of the text 
for understanding the meaning of Scripture. And this is going to be really a worked example of this, though it's only some of the details. And some of you are going to come to Genesis 4, or you'll already come with questions about Genesis 4, which I'm not even going to touch on. You can raise them in questions, and I'll defer them to my learned Old Testament colleague. And we're going to have a particular focus here. But we will be building from some of the details. First of all, then, is there there anything about Genesis 4 to make us think that this is a deliberately detailed, patterned narrative? Well, I think there's lots of evidence of literary craft and care in Genesis 4. And I'm just going to give you one example of this, and that is the phenomenon, which we know is more widespread than here, but the phenomenon of the number 7, as summarized by Gordon Wenham in his commentary on it. Here are some of the sevens around this chapter. Lamech, the seventh generation from Adam. The words Abel and brother both occur seven times in 4, 1 to 17. The name Cain occurs 14 times. Within 2, 4 to 4, 26, Eretz, earth, occurs seven times. Land, Adamar, 14 times. If you add up God the Lord and the Lord God, you get 35 occurrences, matching the 35 occurrences of God in 1, 1 to 2, 3. That means that the last verse of chapter 4 is the 70th mention of God in the book of Genesis. It is also the 14th occurrence of the word for call. Now, I'm not going to go and tell you what I think all that means or what you do with it, but does it not demonstrate that this has been written with the most extraordinary skill and deliberateness and care and that someone is doing something with detail here? And I take it that that is actually uh, an argument for the divinity of the text of Scripture. When I, you know, the, the more you get into the sort of amazing patterns of exegesis and things, the more you think this could not be produced simply by a human being, um, unaided by the Spirit of God let alone that many human beings over that period of time, and still fit together like that. So I take it then there's plenty in Genesis, and we know this, to tell us that the detail really matters. The other thing we need to notice, though, alongside the spirit-breathed details, is the spirit-breathed silences, if you can have a a breathed silence, or the, the, the bits the spirit didn't breathe. Because they're quite striking in this account, aren't they, of Cain and Abel? Think about what we don't know. We don't know what Cain said to Abel. I'm going to come back to that later on and say a bit more about it. But we don't know what he said to him in verse 8. We don't know the details of how he killed him and disposed of his body. What did he say to his parents? What was their reaction? How did everyone cope with this new phenomenon of death? It's a very, 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 and we know this isn't true, this is true widely of ancient narratives. It's a very unpsychological account, isn't it? You think of the fashion today for psychobiographies of people, which can be a really good read, can't they? You sometimes feel they're making up quite a bit of it, because you can't actually see inside somebody's mind. But you really see very little of what's going on here inside minds. I think that tells us that this is a narrative with very, very particular intentions, which are not necessarily the natural intentions that we have as 21st century readers. Or they, don't, they don't line up with our questions necessarily. Okay, now, lots of details here um, that we don't have time to examine. I've selected what I've selected, which is a narrow path of detail, based on God's statement to Cain and its afterlife in the New Testament the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Hence the selection of some of the material from Aeschylus and Virgil as well. 
This passage seems perhaps preeminently to be a description of the effects of what has just happened in chapter 3 and the beginning of its outworking, which we know is progressing toward the terrible state of the world on the eve of the flood. Now, we can see that quite clearly from the way that chapter 4 is tied to chapters 2 to 3 through various details. A lot tells us to tie together 2 to 3 and 4. Let me give you some examples of this, and these are drawn from Wenham and from Hauser. The where question asked of Adam and Cain, 4.9.3.9. The what have you done question, 4.10.3.13. The you are cursed, 4.11.3.14.3.17. The theme of hostility with the ground, 4.11.3.17-19. The idea of hiding from the face in 4.14, Adam and Eve 3.8. The clothing of Adam and Eve and then them going east, quite like the marking of Cain and sending him east. The desire of Eve for Adam in 3.16 that David mentioned in the previous session and the desire of sin for Cain. Maybe one informs the meaning of the other. And the idea of driving out using the same verb, 3.24.4.14. And then, of course, the Toledote marker in 5.1 introducing a new section, again suggesting that the break comes at the end, uh, after the end of, of chapter 4 there. So the murder of Abel through these connections of detail is tied to the fall of Adam and Eve. It is an outworking of the fall of Adam and Eve. And it shows the worsening effects of that fall. Cain, you notice, needs no external tempter. He resists a very immediate warning from God and he protests his punishment. These are all steps in the direction of corruption compared to what happens with the fall of Adam and Eve. Things are getting worse as sin gets a tighter and tighter grip. In one sense, of course, you'd have to say Adam's sin is the most catastrophic sin committed um, at this stage because it, it plunges the whole human race into death. Cain doesn't function as a representative in the way that Adam does. But nonetheless, you see sin getting a tighter, tighter hold here and somebody falling to its temptation more and more easily. Um, So there's an increase also then of the curse that comes. So the curse on the earth is getting worse from 3.17 to 4.12. At the start of this chapter, Cain is a man of the earth. He tills the earth. He brings an offering from the earth. But not at the end of it. His relationship with the earth is worsening as a result of what happens. Really interesting how his, his environmental problem arises from his problem with God. He doesn't heed God's warning. And his problem with his brother, he kills his brother. That ruins even more his relationship with the world, the earth. There's a lesson there for us living in a highly environmentalist culture, isn't it? You can't be a proper environmentalist unless you're a Christian. Unless you understand our relation to the earth in terms of the prior relation to God and our neighbour. Is there some apologetic to environmentalists implicit there. Now I take it that this is all the primary thrust of the passage in its context to demonstrate the terrible unfolding effects of what has just happened and to show what lies ahead for a fallen world. One writer whose book is very mixed, so this is not an, um, when I quote anyone it's not an unqualified recommendation, Um, but Lecoq says this, at the end Eden has never been so remote. Violence has prevailed. Inexorably, the author conducts the story to its final denouement. Cain's or Lamech's world is doomed. Human violence will be paid off 
with violence. Or John Steinbeck, East of Eden. These 16 verses are a history of mankind in any age or culture or race. This is a vivid depiction of the newly fallen human condition. Now let's come then to the matter of justice and the cry of blood. The verb for cry that's used here is often used in urgent circumstances. A woman being assaulted, the Hebrews trapped by the Red Sea and crying out. So it expresses, or at least can express, um, a desperate cry. We know that blood in the Old Testament stands for life, Leviticus 17.11. So it's highly appropriate for blood to cry out when life has been taken, because blood and life go together. And we also know that blood is, as Wenham vividly puts it, the most polluting of all substances in the Old Testament. What is this blood crying? It is crying for justice. It calls in the context of Genesis for a life to be taken, for a life. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And that will, of course, be continued in the Sinai legislation as well. Now, when we realise that, we see actually that the cry of blood is unanswered in Genesis. Cain is protected by God. There is a partial answer because there is a partial punishment, but the punishment is very restrained compared to what the rest of the Old Testament would tell us. In verse 14, we do find some of the elements of retributive punishment as we find it in the rest of the Bible. Some mirroring of the sin, which is a standard and important feature of retribution in the Bible, that the punishment mirrors the sin. Remember when Cain's um, sacrifice is rejected, his face fell, verse 6. So his sin involved a fallenness of face. What's his punishment? To be driven from the face of the ground. And he must hide, he says, from the face of God. So there's a, there's a mirroring of the face theme in the sin and the punishment. But it's a very, very attenuated mirror. There is another mirroring in that Cain fears being killed. Ah, so the murderer fears being murdered. So there's a mirroring there in what he fears, but it's not going to happen because God has put a mark on him. So it is a mirroring, but a very reduced mirroring. It's not life for life. Cain is protected. God gives him a mark. What is it? I know you want me to talk about that. I'm not going to say much about that. Did you know some of the rabbis thought he was given a dog? Isn't that great? A dog to protect him. Um, There is, of course, the idea of the cross-shaped mark of Ezekiel 9. Walter Mobley's got a really interesting article in which he argues that actually that the mark that protects him is his own reputation for vengeance. It's what he himself says about how he'll be avenged. And as we see this unfolding in his descendants... We're not going to go into that. But whatever it is, Cain is protected. God's role here then, and this is interesting in the context of the Oresteia, is actually to stop that spiral of vengeance. There will be retribution in the Old Testament, but when it comes, it will be closely regulated retribution. There will be no Oresteian lawlessness, according to the moral will of God, at least. Now, we find some of the most illuminating uh, material for the meaning of the cry of blood, I think, in the Sinai legislation for the cities of refuge. 
His number is 3533. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Well, that's got obvious resonances with Abel's blood crying out, hasn't it? Why was the land so important if this blood fell on the ground? There is an interesting question here about whether Cain and Abel were in the promised land. Was Eden in the promised land, as some Old Testament commentators think? In which case, it's the same land. It's an aside. Why was the land so important? Well, the promised land was important because it was God's chosen dwelling place. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So much so that the land often becomes like a person. It's personified in the Old Testament, isn't it? Um, its mouth is going to open to swallow Korah. It will vomit out Canaanites. It's almost got a life of its own in the law. So we see in this legislation how the cry of blood, the cry of shed blood, can be answered. When someone is killed, the earth is polluted, it's crying out, and the bloodshedder must pay the one who shed the blood. So we read of the avenger of blood in Numbers 35.19 who will exact retribution from the murderer. Now if you can't discover him, well then the nearest city will sacrifice a heifer and make atonement. That's Deuteronomy 21. If the killing is accidental, as you know, the manslaughter may flee to the city of refuge. And there he will wait until the death of the high priest. Van Poythrus comments, the city symbolically anticipates the eschatological refuge of salvation in Christ and the high priest at that point points us to the high priest whose death takes away sin. But it's not just the promised land in the Old Testament that has a problem with blood shed on it. While the promised land is particularly holy, the Old Testament actually speaks of the defilement of the whole earth. We get this in Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, where we read this. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Now again, in Isaiah the earth is personified. 24.20, the earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again. So in Isaiah's mind, the whole earth is ensanguined, is coated with blood, has absorbed the blood that's been shed on it. This is not simply a problem in the promised land. The whole earth is coated with blood which will not stay Silent. On the day when the Lord judges, Isaiah 26, 21 tells us, the blood will be disclosed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. The Eretz in question here is clearly the whole earth, not just Israel, given earlier references. In fact, Isaiah, as often happens in the prophets, is paralleling Israel and the nations. So just as the promised land was polluted through sins against the Sinai covenant, so the whole earth is polluted when this eternal covenant is broken in Isaiah 24, 
which I take it with E.J. Young is uh, a reference to God's covenant with Adam. And, and if you want to pursue that, then Young's commentary is helpful for arguing that position. That suggests that Israel and its blood-soaked land is not an exception. And this is so important, I think, about Israel generally, isn't it? When, we, when we're preaching the Old Testament, we're not to think that Israel is an exception. Okay. Obviously, in one sense, Israel is exceptional, exceptional privileges and position and priority in the plan of God, but not an exception in the sense of, ah, look at those awful Israelites, but is actually entirely typical of humanity and representative of humanity. And what happens in the history of Israel with Israel's fall and exile is a microcosm of the human condition. That's what we're seeing here with this blood and earth theme. As in the tabernacle, there's a pollution issue. So in the land, there's a pollution issue. As in the land, there's a pollution issue. So in the world, there's a pollution issue. We're to think out from the specific, out from the Holy of Holies and back into the Holy of Holies. We understand what's going on on the earth by narrowing into the Holy of Holies and we understand what's going on there by understanding it as representative of the whole world. How then will the earth find its cleansing? Who is its sacrifice? Its heifer. Who will be its high priest? It's a sign of how seriously Vern Poitras in his book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses, which I commend to your digestion, I think that's probably the appropriate word, um, if, if you're interested in, in the law and you've not read it before. It's a sign of how seriously he takes the Old Testament law that he even asks this question. He says, should a Christian ruler set up a city of refuge? Edward, okay, some of you I know don't like the idea of having a Christian ruler. Um, some of you do. Um, Edward VI, should he have had a city of refuge to deal with manslayers? Here's his answer. Christ has died the death of the great high priest once and for all. His blood is permanently efficacious since he lives forever to make intercession. He continually re-cleanses all the pollutions of the earth. So you don't need one. That's why his blood speaks, as Hebrews 12 says, a better word than the blood of Abel, because the cry of blood is satisfied by the blood of Jesus as he propitiates the wrath of God. And so the spiral of vengeance ceases. The spiral of vengeance described in the Oresteia can only find proper grounds for its cessation at Calvary. That is where sin is answered with justice and in the extraordinary wisdom of God, forgiven at the same time. But what then of the unrepentant to whom the work of Christ is not applied? Outside of Christ and his cross, the cry of blood finds its answer in the judgments of God, some of which occur within history and all the rest will happen on the last day. Those judgments may take the form of judgments by governments, according to Romans 13, exercising the divinely given power of the sword. They may be in moments of divine intervention, if I can call it that. I know there are all sorts of problems with calling it that. But in history, particular events where God does something to judge. In particular, I'm thinking here of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. That takes us, of course, to another mention of Abel, doesn't it, in the New Testament, Matthew 23, 
I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. It is something which ironically only works in English, the A to Z of blood that's been shed. But it's going to come upon that generation notice, not later generations of Jewish people, that generation in the climactic judgment of AD 70. Poitras comments, the destruction of the temple loomed Everest high in the consciousness of Matthew's generation as the great inner historical punitive judgment of God. So it could be in the routine judgments of governments that the cry of blood is partly answered. It could be in those moments of divine judgment, such as AD 70, and I don't think we can think there aren't others like that. Nothing on that scale, but others like it in God's providential government of history. And if not there, then it will be on the last day to which AD 70 was in any case a pointer, which is, I take it, why the two are woven together in the Olivet Discourse, because the one is in anticipation of the other. The cry of blood has been answered and will be answered. Every drop of it has been answered and will be answered. Let me close with two thoughts about how this material may be applied in our lives and the lives of our churches. I think we see in the story of Abel here, and this is slightly not building on what I've said, but bringing in some other material, the character of life in a fallen world. We see righteous Abel's bloodshed and crying out from the ground. Abel's name, you may remember, Havel, uh, means foggy vapor. It's what's translated as vanity, rather unhelpfully, I think. Philip, you wrote an article on this, didn't you, on Ecclesiastes. In Foundations, good article in Foundations on how to interpret Ecclesiastes. It's not just vanity. There's more to Havel than that. This is, this is foggy vapor. It's impermanence. Abel is a picture really of the book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, and what it says about the believer living in a fallen world and what it's like to live in a fallen world. Uh, That word occurs 38 times in Ecclesiastes. I think it's no coincidence. Abel in Genesis 4 is quite vaporous. He's almost not there. He doesn't get much attention at all. He really appears to make a sacrifice for that to provoke his brother, and then all the focus is on Cain. Cain is the actor Cain is the speaker. Abel is pretty insignificant. Even his name is not unpacked, although I've just said I think his name is very significant in the the, the biblical theological picture for understanding what he's a picture of. His name is not unpacked in the way that other names are, and it's not played on in the way that Cain's name is in the narrative. Abraham, the father of many, Isaac, the laughter thing. A lot of significant names here, but none of that's unpacked for us here. And Is it striking that we don't know what Cain said to Abel in verse 8? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and you're expecting, and said, and when they were in the field, sort of they're teleported to the field with, with no conversation. Suddenly we find ourselves in the field. Now, lots of ancient versions of the Old Testament supply the conversation. Septuagint, Samaritan, Syriac, Vulgate all have versions of this conversation. 
some of the Renninger writers thought that Cain and Abel had a big theological discussion and that Cain argued there is no judgment. And Abel said, yes, there is, and then Cain killed him and then discovered there is. I think that's probably mistaken to try to insert things. Ellen Van Vold, um, in a very helpful article, makes this comment. This empty speaking would then suggest or testify to the negation of the existence of the other as an equal, as a brother, and it can be seen as pointing ahead to the actual elimination of the other. You know, the narrative isn't even bothered to tell us what he said to Abel, because Abel is so insignificant. He's just here to be done away with. We've been reading Ecclesiastes as a family recently, provoked by my ruminations on this theme, and it's been a bit of a challenge. Um, but I was struck the other night by Ecclesiastes 8.14. It could hardly be a better summary of Genesis 4. There is a hevel that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is hevel. It is. It's what happens to him back in Genesis. So here in pondering righteous Abel and the fact that he almost appears only to have his blood cry out to God. In one sense, his afterlife is far more significant in the Bible than his life. His cry, his, his cry is his significance. That, that he's only here to do this reminds us of the fragility, frailty, vaporousness of the life of the believer on this earth. This is what it could be like to be righteous. At times, the righteous will be culturally insignificant, hardly mentioned, and actually done away with, as many today know. And yet, and this is why this is related to the theme of the, the justice that we've been considering, and yet, as we remember that, and we feel our fragility and our vaporousness, we are reminded that this cry is not forgotten, and that it does have, has had, and will have its answer, either in the works of government or the historical judgments of God or on the last day, or wonderfully bound together with forgiveness at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Secondly and lastly, you'll recall the words of Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times... Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Where have we heard such language before? Genesis 4, 24 of Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Exactly the same words in the Septuagint and in Matthew's Gospel. So here the Lord Jesus tells his followers that the spiral of violence which is envisaged there by Lamech, of which he is proud, has come to an end because the day has come when he is soon to die to bring it to an end. And as that spiral of violence ends in his cross, so therefore it must end in his church. Where vengeance remains to be taken, it is mine says the Lord, and I will exact it on the day of judgment, and you are not to exact it now. And that, I take it, is a theme not irrelevant to Christian pastors. 
because you will have experienced wrong from your people and I'm sure you will experience more of it. Not necessarily from the world outside, which in a sense can be less painful because you expect it, but from a close and dear brother in the church. And surely in the midst of that experience, we must fix our eyes on this thought, that the cry of blood has been answered and it is not for us to answer it.